change makers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many change makers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Asha Rangappa, an American lawyer, senior lecturer, and director of admissions at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. She's also a commentator on CNN. At Yale, she teaches national security law and related courses. She graduated from SPIA in 1996 and from Yale Law School in 2000. In between, she was a Fulbright Scholar in Bogota, Colombia. Following law school, she served as a law clerk for the Honorable Juan Tarula, U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She then joined the FBI as a special agent, specializing in counterintelligence investigations in New York City from 2002 until 2005. You know, I know a lot of your work and your writing has been focused on national security, foreign intelligence. I'm sort of curious if you can tell us just sort of about the state of those issues currently. Oh, wow. We're starting (laughs) off right in the deep end. I'm jumping right in. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say that we are in the middle of a constitutional crisis and potentially on the brink of a an autocracy um, with sort of a veneer of a democracy over it. That's big. That's a big thing to start with. It is. It's, it's what keeps me up at night, quite Clearly. frankly. Yeah. I mean, it, I wanted to ask what policy issues were on your mind. Is this, <laughs> is this among the top of them? I'm sure it is. Saving democracy. Yes. Right. Um, yes. That's my big policy. That's my, you know, I'm a one issue voter. Uh, that's it. Can we disentangle that a bit more? I know it's a really big thing, but can we break that down? Sure. I, you know, I'm an institutionalist. I have worked for the government. I believe that our institutions, you know, have been, you know, I, I believe that civil servants do their job. I believe that the government is generally, you know, a good thing um, and and has the power to you know, reinforce democratic values. I think what has happened over the last four years is that we've seen a lot of erosion and the ways in which we expected our institutions to create guardrails um, has, you know, they've, they've delivered, but they have really been weakened in the process. It's like we were hit by a Mack truck and we're recovering in the hospital, and it's going to take a lot of time to heal and rebuild and kind of go through the physical therapy to get everything working again. But if you like throw that person back in or hit them again, like it's, you know, then it's going to be over. They're already weakened. Um, And that's where I think we are right now. And I'm really worried. So what are some of the concrete steps that the Biden administration and others should, should consider taking at this point? Well, I think that, you know, ensuring voting rights is just the most paramount thing. I don't know anyone, regardless of what side of the aisle that you're on, who would disagree with the idea that voting is the bedrock of our democracy. Um, You know, you have to uh, ensure that everyone has 
the opportunity and access to be able to vote. And I think that right now what we're seeing are a lot of anti-democratic initiatives being taken, not only in restricting access to the vote, but also in changing the ways that votes are certified. You know, all of these things are fundamentally, you know, anti-democratic and they're really setting us up for a bad situation in you know, possibly 2022, uh, definitely 2024, it's not even about, you know, what the outcome is. It's when people don't trust the outcome. If you have everyone believing that the, you know, the results of an election are illegitimate, you basically at that point destroyed democracy. You know, it's like the dollar bill. Like everyone has to believe that it works, you know, agree to kind of some ground rules uh, for it for it to function. And I think we're at a place where some of those ground rules and that basic consensus is breaking down. So, so can you tell me a bit more now that we got this hard stuff out of the way, uh, I'm curious just sort of what kind of projects you're working on right now that may, you know, kind of blend into what you were just saying, or just an initiative you're excited that you're engaged in right now. I have a you know, a few things. I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily big projects or initiatives. I mean, one is the class that I've been teaching Yeah. for the last four years. I teach a class called Russian Intelligence, Information Warfare, and Social Media. It's, it's a policy class. I mean, it's also, you know, history, it's law, it's, you know, intelligence. But ultimately, it's about getting students to think about the intersection of disinformation with technology and the impact that it has on democracy. And they, in the end of the class, they write policy papers with proposals to, you know, address one aspect of the problem. And I I always love reading that because it's like, you know, solution oriented. It's not gloom and doom and me, you know, in my sweatpants staring at the ceiling. It makes me feel better about life. I think the other things are, you know, I, I write a lot about this issue, about kind of the erosion of our our democratic guardrails, about yeah. you know some of the alarm signals that that we're seeing, and I especially think it's important. I'm a member of the legal profession, and you know I think one of the the worst aspects of what we've seen is that you know lawyers have become complicit in um, eroding a lot of these. Uh, you know, norms in the, in the last few years and, and are continuing to do so. So, you know, I'm involved in bar associations who are looking at ways that lawyers can, you know, reinforce the, the rule of law and the ethics of, of the legal profession. And then, you know, ultimately, I, I'm interested in, in writing a book. I think it's still in the formulation phase. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. But um, that's sort of the, the bigger long term project that I'm I, I kind of see on the horizon. That's great. You have a you have a quite a Twitter presence. <laughs> I <laughs> following. I, no, I love your account. As I said, you know, I went as I went over in your bio. You're a lawyer. You teach. You were a special agent. You know, talk a bit more about sort of what you've learned over your career. It's a very broad question, but I'm just sort of curious. What are the skills or strategies you picked up throughout the course of all of that? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe one thread, particularly from the FBI to being the dean of admissions at Yale Law School to teaching is, you know, really learning to get what makes people tick 
and where they're coming from. Um, which I think, you know, if we did more of in society, we'd maybe be in a better place, uh, right now. Um, so that's kind of one theme. The other theme for me personally is just, you know, taking risks and, uh, really jumping into things that excite me and not having, you know, too, too much of a tunnel vision on what I expect my, career to look like or, or the path that I need to follow. And I think that that's allowed me to really experience a bunch of different things. How did Princeton sort of prepare you to make some of those choices and maybe pivot and turn when you felt like doing that? Well, Princeton, I think for me was just a fabulous place to explore a lot of different things. The fact that they had distribution requirements and you could really like you know, kind of forced you to get outside of your comfort zone in terms of your intellectual interests with, I think, good conditioning. And then I was in the School of Public and International Affairs, uh, then known as the Woodrow Wilson School, which was interdisciplinary. So again, you had to really be very nimble across a number of different disciplines, you know, so you weren't um, necessarily buried in just in just one. So I think intellectually it did it may not have been conscious of it at the time but you know it it sort of trained me to do that. I also, you know, straddled a lot of different worlds when I was at Princeton. So while I was you know focusing on Latin American drug policy in my academics, I was in the Triangle Club in my free time, you know, yeah. doing silly sketches and, you know, um, whatever, you know, dancing on stage. So for me, um, I felt like I got to explore a lot of different interests and facets of, you know, who I am and discover a lot of different facets of who I am when I was when I was at Princeton. Are you still singing today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I still well not since COVID, but I've been a, a karaoke aficionado. Um, yeah, I, I love karaoke. Um, when I was in law school, I was in an acapella group called Habeas Chorus. Oh, fun! Um, so, <laughs> just pivoting a little bit, I kind of want to talk about decision making with you because we're living in this time where there's all these global humanitarian crises. There's, um, you know, political tumult. There's, you know, our democracy is at threat, as you said earlier. So uh, what do you think are some of the effective strategies we can use to go about forging a consensus or at least just getting people in agreement? Because it seems like that's incredibly hard to do today. So, you know, it's interesting. This is something that I think about a lot and I, I cover in my, in my class. Cause one of the things that we explore when we're looking at these, you know, very current topics like disinformation and technology and social media, um, we look at the idea of social trust. Um, and social trust is something that sociologists study. It's the way that we create value from human relationships and social trust is really important for, a number of things, but especially for democracy, um, because it creates a certain bond between, you know, you and your fellow citizen, um, people that you may not know, because you know that you you are united o- around common values. Um, so 
you know, countries, for example, that ha- that have high levels of social trust tend to have not only high levels of civic engagement, but, you know, people pay their taxes, people contribute to charity, people, you know, th- there's just more, um, the, there's more kind of lubrication in society in the sense that things run more efficiently and easier because you don't have people at each other's throats, you're not litigating everything, you know, you're not at, you know, stalemate. Uh, for every single issue. And one of the things that we kind of get back to when we look at historically when we've had high levels of social trust here in the United States, you know, a lot of it was, you know, before television, when people were really engaged in their communities and basically like kind of interacting in real life is really kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, Because that's kind of where, you know, it's like when, you know, you're on a train and you speak to a stranger, you know, you kind of, you, you feel like you've just connected and there's a way in which it makes you feel more connected, not just to that person, but just to people generally. Right. And so as we've become more isolated, I think that, you know, we have lost a lot of that. It makes it easier for us to imagine people as, you know, our fellow citizens as enemies and and all of that and lose some of this ability to create agreement and the reservoir of, you know, general goodwill that you need to have disagreements productively. Um, So in some ways, I kind of feel like the solution is how do we get people back out and engaging, you know, whether, and I mean, COVID has not helped this, by the way. I was just about to ask. Yeah. Your thoughts on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's actually some great articles. Um, There's one article in the Atlantic called the pandemic has erased entire categories of friendship. And it talks kind of about this concept of like these, you know, peripheral connections we have, the person that you buy your coffee from on, you know, corner and all of these things that kind of make you feel connected to the broader world. you know, have COVID sort of obliterated that at least for a little while. Um, But I think we need to not only get that back, but we need to just do it at a larger scale. And so some of that is just like getting involved in local organizations, um, you know, or whatever sports teams, just the kinds of things that where we're not like all sitting around looking at our our screens all day. Right. Because I mean, there you might be exposed to some different beliefs, different, you know, whereas here, you know, when you're all online, you can kind of sink into the own bubble of your choosing, right? Yeah. And it gives you a false sense of connectedness, I think. Yeah. You know, it makes you feel like you have a billion friends and, you know, you know, all these people and you're, you're in touch with them, but you know, you're really not commenting on a friend's Facebook post is not really the same as picking up the phone and calling them um, or seeing them in person over lunch. And so what I worry about is that we have you know, basically an entire generation that doesn't know anything else at this point. Um, and how, how can we swing the pendulum back uh, to, to some sort of balance, you know, to start treating it the way that we do like junk food right, <laughs> or, or alcohol, you know? Um, yeah. This is good food for thought. I kind of want to ask you, you know, I always ask guests on this show for advice for the next generation. And I kind of am curious if this might loop into some of your advice at all for what you would say to those young people today. Look, it's a challenge that I face with my own kids. You know, they're, I mean, I, I'm, I'll be blunt, they're kind of addicted. And so we just go through these cycles of, you know, you have like, you need to go outside and like, play basketball in the, in the driveway or go see your friends or go do whatever, but, you know, just get off, off the screens. And, um, 
I think in some ways, because some of these negative externalities are more, we're more aware of it now, you know, the the internet and social media just arrived and saturated our lives so quickly that we didn't appreciate, you know, the, the consequences of it. But I think that because those consequences are now more discussed, like we're doing now, maybe, you know, it will, you know, it will, it will balance out. Younger people will kind of adapt or kind of grow up knowing that that's a part of their responsibility, you know? Right. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about everything we've covered in this conversation so far, and it feels like there's a, a lot to sort of tackle um, just as a country, as a world. So what can we be optimistic about? Well, I think we can be optimistic that, for one thing, I think people are more engaged, right? Like people are paying attention. I mean, one thing that social media has allowed us to do is become aware of of things that it was really easy for us to um, either be ignorant of or blind to, um, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, like human civil rights abuses here in the States or human rights abuses around the world. Like there's a certain level of um, general awareness. And I think activism that has come out of that, that makes people, they are more connected in a way to the world in the sense that they feel like they have an obligation to fix things, whether it's climate change or, or any of these other things. So that's really good. The question is, you know, how, how can we channel that in a way that also makes everyone feel more connected? And then, you know, sometimes when I get overwhelmed with everything at this, like, you know, 50,000 foot level, I just kind of try to come back to my little corner of the world you know, my little plot of land, like, am I doing what I need to do, you know, with my friends, with my family, with my community? Um, And, you know, and I think when we get to the micro level, you do see a lot of people doing doing the right thing and doing good things in the world. So to me, that's also optimistic. Can we talk about leadership for a second? You know, I think a lot of these things that we've talked about today require really good leadership. Uh, What do you think it takes to be a good leader today? leadership requires courage today. And I think we teach leadership as though it's a position. Like you're a leader if you hold, you know, the highest position in any given organization. When you, you know, when those leaders are not behaving ethically or when there's misconduct, you know, leadership is when even somebody who is at the bottom is willing to speak truth to power even at great risk to themselves or their job. Um, And, you know, we see this, you know, in the very extreme situations. Like if you look at Russia and you look at um, Alexei Navalny, who's the opposition leader, you know, who's had an assassination attempt against him, but is still willing to like went back to Russia, like was imprisoned. I mean, we, you know, this is a, a story that we see all the time of, you know, opposition leaders and, um, and we call them opposition, you know, they're, they're leaders. They're, they're really going up against the power structure. Um, and I think that increasingly, you know, as to kind of tie this back to the, the things that I said, keep me up at night, you know, we need people with moral courage, right. And um, who are 
unwilling to just take the path of least resistance, um, which is just to follow the leader, right? And be be their own leaders and uh, follow the strength of their own convictions. So that's what I think it takes. That's super well said. Thank you. Well, Asha, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time to catch up with me today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.